Well, hey guys, welcome ev- uh, those of you guys that are here, and uh, um, uh, I can't be more excited about this. This is my, my favorite thing that we do at the church, mainly because um, my family means so much to me, and oftentimes they get the leftovers, and I don't know if you can relate to that, but sometimes I think in the modern day we're living in, life is just busier than in any other time that I can ever have heard of, and um so with that being said, I hate that my family gets the leftovers, but it means more to me that my family flourishes than anything else that I do in my life. And so if I end up poor, but I disciple my home, that is awesome. you know. But at the end of my life, if I get the praise of man and we did great things and we made a lot of money, but our family isn't proud of who we are and what we've done, and that's a... Uh, that's a hot mess right there. That's a. So, anyways, with that being said, uh, I brought two friends in today that I am, I love, and I honestly, I think the only way to be a great Christian is to be a great student, and to look at other people and see Christ in everything that they do. Uh, Doctor Crosby and 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 Pam Crosby, um, they are awesome. Uh, they've pastored big churches, they've pastored small churches, they've been uh, over at Southeastern in just about every role that that campus has to offer, I think you've taken on from vice president down to everything, you know, and um, anyways, who, who they are is is fantastic, and it's, it's not just that they love God, and that they've been great pastors, and they know the Lord, and they know what God wants to accomplish in the body of Christ, but what I love most about them is what I see in their family, and in their kids, and so some of you guys have been here for a while, and some of you guys haven't, but we had, um, back in the day, we had two pastors that were on staff with us, Kara and Rick, and uh, this is um, Kara's dad and mom, and so uh, then they are, every one of their kids loves God and is the greatest example of the body of Christ that I've ever seen, and, and that's just fruit of their home and of their marriage, most importantly, and so you're going to hear about that in a little bit, and so... I gave him free reign mostly to just say whatever he wants to say, and we just talked about it. And so anyways, um, another thing that is probably worth mentioning, I don't know if you guys, I don't, I've never said this before, but um, when I, when we had um, left Life Church in Arbondale and we're praying about starting the church that Pastor Shane put in our heart, um, it was kind of confusing. There was a lot of turmoil in, in, in the whole mess, and we were like, you know what, God? I don't know what you want, but I do want to reach my friends, and I do want to pastor people, but I, I'm just scared, and I don't really know if it's right. The first person that we talked to was Dr. Crosby, and uh, I remember sitting down with you, and you said, man, you have to do this, and uh, I was terrified. I just knew that he was going to say, no, this is a bad idea, definitely not you of all people, and uh, he did not say that, and so uh, I was like, man, this is really overwhelming, and so I went home from that night, and Teresa and I said, well, let's, let's talk to a few more people to make sure we know what we're talking about. Uh, it turned out uh, you were right. And so, again, anyways, without further ado, uh, Dr. Crosby. All right. Well, it is so good to be with you today. We've been looking forward to it. Uh, my voice is a little raspy today. It's a little Marlon Brando-ish, but don't let that intimidate you. <laughs> We, uh, part of my story is actually a number of years ago, uh, I lost my voice. And it was when I was pastoring in New England. And those of you that haven't heard the story, it was in the middle of a sermon. 
my voice just went out. It had been strong, no issues. I'd led worship and everything. In the middle of a sermon, it just went out. And it sort of was like uh, listening to somebody on a cell phone go in and out. And I was having a lot of difficulty projecting it. And, uh, and in the middle of it, you know, it was a Christmas Eve, so I wrapped my sermon up. You usually go shorter on Christmas Eve anyhow. And uh, on the way out, people are like, take care of that voice, you know, all of this. And I said, yeah, it must be laryngitis. Well, it was more of a chronic issue, and it was diagnosed as a vocal cord issue. So uh, it was a season... It was a season uh, in which we were busy, we were pastoring, uh, we were at a church that also had a school as a part of it. So uh, I'm preaching every Sunday and, uh, and went to a number of different specialists. It was eventually diagnosed as a vocal cord disorder. Um, and that led to a season of, Lord, you know, you've called me to preach and now I'm having difficulty talking. What's the deal with that? You sent me to Boston. Uh, to be a pastor, and I'm having difficulty talking. So my questions became, why this? Why here? Why now? What's the other why? Why me? And, uh, and so it was, it was internally a discouraging time. The amazing thing is the church continued to grow. We were there another 12 years. Uh, people were praying for me. I mean, I'm Pentecostal. People were praying for me to be healed. Uh, I was probably the, the oiliest pastor in New England, um, and yet I still continued to have challenges with my voice. I still was preaching and everything. Um, and in the midst of it, my prayer moved from why to what. What is it, God? If you're not going to heal me yet, what is it that you're going to do? And uh, we had a visiting evangelist one night, and he was in my office getting ready to go out for the evening service. And, you know, he heard my voice that day, and it was worse than it is this morning. And he said, man, your voice sounds terrible. And I'm thinking, well, thanks for the encouragement, you know. He said, let me get this straight. He said, you're a preacher, and you can't talk. He said, what are you going to do, write? And little did he know what sounded sarcastic struck a prophetic chord within me. And he did not know that I'd been praying about just that, about while I was struggling with my voice, finally trying to write a book that I thought about writing for years. And over the next three or four years, God just began to open up so many doors. We uh, published books with Focus on the Family, with a couple of other national publishers. Uh, God opened up just some amazing things. The first books that we wrote uh, were on questions to use in your marriage and your family. And we had some very creative title, like Great Questions, you know. So the editors of Focus called me, and they said, uh, we've looked over your proposal. We don't want to do a book with you. And I thought, well, that's, that's you know, too bad. And he said, we want to do two books with you. And I said, well, great. He said, but we want to use a different title. I said, well, what title do you want to use? They said, we want to call the books Now We're Talking. Well, you have to realize the irony of that, because I was struggling talking to one person. And then these books were coming out that would end up going all over the world entitled Now We're Talking. So God makes his strength known in our weakness. When we're weak, then he's strong. And uh, as I began to come to terms with that and accept that there was a what that God was doing, more of my voice returned. And actually, my voice is much better now than it is today. Uh, I actually, a few days ago, had a treatment that I'll have periodically 
that initially will leave you with a little bit of a raspy voice for a couple of days, but then I'll have a strong voice for several months. And so the Lord has really helped me. I still continue to preach, teach. It doesn't hurt me to use my voice. Um, but it just happens, so happens today that it's a little raspy. So it, uh, I apologize for that, but I look forward to engaging you. And it is exciting to be able to be here and to talk about like our favorite subject of all and uh, next to Jesus, and that is families, uh, marriage and families. I believe there are probably no relationships in life that are more rewarding, and there are no relationships in life that are more challenging than marriage and parenting. Uh, I love to say to students at Southeastern when I'm in a classroom, I'll say, uh, are there any of you in the room that are in love right now? And they'll sort of look or grin. I said, are there any of you that are maybe are in like with someone, you know? And they'll kind of ask, and I'll say, you know, whatever it is, that person you're really interested in, whatever you like about them, one day if you get married, it's going to be like 100 times better. And I say, why? Because you're going to be with them so often. It's going to be just great, the joy they bring you. It's going to be great. And then I'll say, you know, whatever it is that you don't like about them, it's going to be more challenging. Because marriage is so intense. Marriage is an immersive experience. Uh, and the, the joys and the challenges are all a part of it. Well, I'm going to introduce to you and uh, my wife, who's here today, and excited to hear from, from her. We uh, met at Southeastern a number of years ago as students. She is from Michigan. I'm from South Carolina. When I went to Southeastern, my parents said, do whatever you want to do, but whatever you do, do not bring a Yankee home with you. Her parents said, do whatever you do, but whatever you do, do not bring a Southerner home with you. So that led to some interesting experiences. Yeah, we're very obedient. We were very obedient yeah. children. So this is so uh, God has blessed us with the same. <laughs> well, it's really great to be with everyone this morning. Um, thank you for inviting us. And uh, we've been here before, so it's really great, though, to come and see what God's doing and what he's done and the development. Um, and I have to say uh, hello from Rick and Carol Bloomquist. For those of you that knew Rick and Carol when they were here, and um, Carol was like, please tell everybody I said hi. She gets really homesick. When Kara starts FaceTiming us like three times a day, we know, okay, <laughs> you're a little homesick. Time to go visit. But they're um, doing really, really well. Love their, their church that the Lord has um, placed them on staff at called The Cross in Loganville. You're like, where in the world is Loganville? <laughs> right outside of Atlanta. And um, it has a Walmart. It has a Starbucks. <laughs> if you think Lakeland is small, go to Loganville. You'll, you'll appreciate Lakeland. But um, they really, really love it. They are in an interesting place, especially Rick, Rick's office. Um, the church, when it inherited the property that it built the church on, the church is about 1,000 people. And so when it first started, um, they started in a home, and then they grew. And as they grew, you know, they kind of built phase one, phase two. Phase two is now the sanctuary. Phase one is now the student ministries building, which is where Rick is located with his group. And the house is still there. And they've turned um, some of the rooms of the house into offices. But the unique thing of the house 
some of you, your parents will know this better than you will, is that the owners, the original owners of this house were Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson when they were married back in the day. And they did a, um, they built the house modeled after the Terra Mansion and Gone with the Wind. So if you know Rick, can you imagine him in an office in a, in a room of the Terra Mansion? <laughs> and you go in his bathroom and it's like gold faucets and it's crazy. And so um, he just kind of tolerates, you know, the beauty. So it's, it's been an interesting place for them to be, but they really love it. And um, they're, of course, expecting baby number two. Our grandchild number two, so we're excited about that. Nora Joy, and I told Kara, I hope God blesses you with one of yourself so that <laughs> payback time. <laughs> uh, yeah, her middle name is Joy as well, and uh, she's going to name this next one Joy. So we are especially blessed to be here uh, having watched God work through Tim mm -hmm. and Trey and just to see the beautiful development of your facility and all that God is doing. It's exciting. We, uh, the other day I was interviewing a student, and we were just doing a little Q&A, helping students to get to know one another, and he's from, uh, from India. And I'm talking to him, and I said, what is it you enjoy doing? I love doing sound engineering. And he said, yeah. And he said, I was looking for an opportunity. I found an opportunity at a great church. I said, where? He said, the way. And it's Caleb. <laughs> Caleb, and uh, such a wonderful young man, just great to hear his story, and so funny when you get to know him. Uh, he was so quiet for a couple of weeks, and then I interviewed him, and there's, there's so much in there. So we're, uh, we're thrilled to be here today. Mm -hmm. Well, you have some note sheets in front of you. We're going to be looking at the, the idea of the teaming couple on uh, today, the teaming family. Uh, we do have a couple of pictures. We can show one of those. Uh, that is a picture of our family, and this is one. This is one that actually was a couple of years this ago. This is not Kara's favorite picture. Yeah, so don't, don't tell. Don't tell, tell Kara we showed this because she was actually <laughs> expecting Ricky when we, you know, when we took this. But this was when we were on vacation. Uh, one of the things that we found that has been really helpful to our family at this stage is to let everybody know that there is a week every year that we're going to connect. And we found that if we tell them, we're going to do this every year. Now, you don't have to do it. You're married. You have other responsibilities. Maybe your in-laws want you to go there. But we're coming together at this time, and we're going to have a place, and we would love to have you come, uh, but to let them know way ahead of time. So mm -hmm. we started a few years ago when actually Pamela got tired of making Thanksgiving dinner every year <laughs> and saying that, you know, I spend three days making this meal, and you guys eat in 20 minutes. You know, she said, could we go away for Thanksgiving? So we did. And this was a cabin up in North Carolina and just outside of that. And then the next picture was the baby picture of Ricky. Which is also it's an older, older It's older. He, <laughs> it's older because he's almost two years old now. He'll be two years old next week. So we have to change this, but we are very Yeah, but attached. it's so cute. We're attached to this picture. It's so cute. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Um, one of the, uh, the questions that you ask in marriage is what's the purpose of marriage? Why did God create this thing called marriage? You know, when you look at how marriage and family covers the globe, 
It's like the central relational organization of the world. Uh, why did God create family? Why did he create, you know, husband, wife, family? Well, it would take a whole nother session to get into this in detail. But simply put, I believe that the image of God is not what you see when you look in the mirror primarily. It's community. Community. God does not ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. The Trinity is a community of persons. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's something about that union of the Trinity, their, their relationship. Jesus prayed to God, Father, I pray for these you've given me, these disciples, that they all may be one, even as you and I are one. You and me and me and you, may they come into complete unity. So we believe that God, as a reflection of his nature, created families. That their relationship reminds him of, him, of his image, of the Trinity. So we're a reflection of the Trinity. Another New Testament verse, remember when Jesus said, we'll often, and Pastor Tim and I know this, whenever attendance is lower than we hoped, the go-to verse is, well, where two or three come together, <laughs> there am I in the midst of them. That's, you know, we look at it as like the consolation verse, you know, the consolation, and I've used it. Um, but as I've looked at it, that's not the meaning of that verse. Jesus said, no, where two or three of you come together in my name, that's so beautiful. I will be there. I will be there. It's a reflection of the Trinity. It reminds God of his nature. So how is God going to fill the earth with his glory? One way is through families, that the whole earth would be full of something glorious. So, so what is the goal of marriage? What's the goal of it? Well, one of the things that uh, we believe is that you can learn a lot from marriage from a magnet, a magnet. Sure. You have to... You know, let them know I'm your lovely assistant. Yes, my lovely assistant holding my mic today. Um, but when you look at a magnet, you know, the opposite poles are drawn together. And we, we know that. You know, probably as a kid at some time you had a magnet and you just enjoy playing with it and, you know, whatever. Well, you turn it around, and when you put the same poles, what do they do? They repel each other. They they work against one another. The, and there's scientists in the room, I'm sure, that could tell us why this happens. But when you're a kid, it seems like magic, you know, that this occurs. But something that could be so drawn together like that could turn around and could actually repel each other. Why is it the person that you can be so drawn to that you say, I want to spend my life with you, can sometimes frustrate you so much? can sometimes irritate you so much. How could it be that the person that has been able to draw you so close that, ladies, many of you were willing to change your last name? You talk about identity. And you were willing to leave, men and women, willing to leave your father and mother and to join together with this person to build a relationship. But there's still that potential being able to push one another away. Thank you. Um, the magnet. So you can learn something from marriage about uh, something about marriage from a magnet. Now, one of the things that we find is often a tool of the enemy in marriage is to get us to believe things that are not true. 
One is that you're the only couple dealing with these challenges. That's a big one. He loves to make, well, you know what you're going through. Now, that's just unique because you've got unique issues. And you know what? The more we teach and interact with couples, and we'll be in, uh, we'll be in uh, Long Island, New York next week meeting with another gr uh, group of couples. The more we do this, the more we find out the problems and the challenges are so similar, so similar. And the opportunities are so similar. So what are some of the myths about marriage? Well, let's talk about a few of them. Number one, marriage will make you happy. You know, a person that says, I, I really haven't been happy. I've been alone, so I haven't been happy. So I'm going to get married so that I'll be happy. Marriage is going to bring me everything I need in my life. This, this man is going to come, and he's a knight in shining armor. And he's going to fill my world with everything that I've been missing. And I'm going to know joy, joy, joy for the rest of my life. It's going to be just like in the movies. It's going to be just amazing. Joy. Marriage is going to make you happy. Do you know, scripturally, the primary purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. Sorry. Sorry to tell you that on Saturday morning, you know, April 7th. Um, it's not to make you happy. You know what it is? It's to make you holy. To make you holy. You say, what do you mean to make me holy? What, what about single people? Are they not able to get holy or become holy? No, but I, I will say this. There is something about the marriage union that is so totally biblical, comprehensively, from Adam and Eve all the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation all the way to Paul in Ephesians 5, talking about how the, the husband, that like Christ is the husband to the bride, that the husband watches over his wife. He gives himself. He sacrifices himself for her. He washes her with the word of God. And that wives honor, respect your husbands. The husband's to love his wife. But wives honor, respect your husbands, just as the church does Christ. Now, what we tend to do, because we get in a power mode, we say, all right, that means that the men are the bosses and the women are the slaves. No, 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 because if you back up in Ephesians, the spirit of that chapter says, submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus did not come into the world and say, all right, I'm in charge, start serving. He didn't do that. He said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came into the world so that the world through me might be saved. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came not to be served. Wow. Imagine the husband that says that. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came to be the lead servant in my family. Now, there's a, there's a, a paradox, isn't it, to be the lead servant in my home. So marriage is designed. Now, now, happiness and joy is a residual of marriage. But how many of you know, not every day, every moment, are you going to feel happy and joyful? But that's true. And that's a whole other teaching on how joy is actually a decision in our lives. It's a choice. It isn't dependent upon someone else. Uh, another marriage myth number two. Your spouse knows what you need. Your spouse knows what you need exactly what you need to the depth of your being. No, 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 no. They, they, you, you may think you know what they need, but you don't always know what they need. 
And the real challenge is a spouse where one spouse is very verbal, communicative, and the other one tends to be very quiet. Um, you know, on the, I don't know if any of you have taken the, the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs uh, temperament, you know, assessment. But with it, you have the introvert and the extrovert. Now, the introvert does not mean you sit in a room by yourself all the time. Introverts still connect with people. Many of them really enjoy people. But it means that you are renewed by your alone time. Extroverts, you're renewed by your people time, you know. Uh, extra, introverts can be out with a group of people having a blast laughing, and at the end you're like, why do I feel so wiped out? And why do I just want to go uh, watch Netflix, you know, by myself, you know? Um, but on the other hand, uh, a person that has been, uh, that is an extrovert, and, you know, Pamela, I mean, Pamela is more of an extrovert than I am. You probably figured that out already. Well, our 10th wedding anniversary, we went to a cabin, and I still remember uh, we were sitting. I was sitting in a living room. She was in the bedroom. The door was open. She was on the bed reading a book. And I'm in the other room reading a book, which I enjoy doing. And all of a sudden, I heard her laughing in the other room. I'm like, what are you laughing at? She said, I can't believe it. I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm reading a book, and I'm having a good time. She said, I never would have done that 10 years ago. She said, I think you've had an, an impact on me. So later... That afternoon, we're over by a lake looking under rocks, which she loves to do. Like, are there crayfish or whatever under here? You know, just the, like the little tomboy girl, you know, out you know, looking for stuff. And she and we're out there doing that, and I started laughing. She said, what do you laugh? I said, because I'm having a good time. And this would not have been my idea of a relaxing vacation, you know, 10 years ago. So you affect each other. Three words that you can write to the side that have been very helpful to us in our marriage one is balance. You balance one another by your differences. Two is bend. You learn to bend towards one another. And three is blend. God works a blend out of the two of your lives. Two are better than one. So balancing, bending, and blending. Uh, and then number three, your differences, as we talked about with the magnet, will only push you apart. Your differences will only push you apart. If you allow them to, they could. If you just draw lines of demarcation, they, they could. But your differences can also open you up. One reason we believe that differences draw couples together in marriage is because those differences call out potential within us that we don't realize that we have. When, uh, when we were in our senior year at Southeastern, uh, the student body president, who, by the way, had tried to date Pam, he didn't, wasn't able to succeed. You know, I, I won out. But believe it or not, the student body president one day said, hey, I'm walking by him. It was near the end of the semester. He said, hey, Robert, he said, uh, we just had somebody cancel for senior chapel next Friday. How would you like to preach? And I'm thinking, I've got all these term papers to do and all this stuff. And he was right in the moment. I said, uh, Maurice, I said, man, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, to be ready for that would be tough. So I'll take a rain check, which I knew there wouldn't be a rain check. It was the end of my senior year. So then Pamela and I were dating, and I went to lunch. I said, you'll never guess what happened. She said, what? I said, Maurice just asked me to speak at chapel next week. She said, that's amazing. You're going you're gonna to preach at chapel? I said, no. I told him, no. You did what? <laughs> you turned down an opportunity like that. So, you know, we, we had a little bit of an argument, a little bit. And she said, Robert, you've got to go let him know right away. 
that you'll do that. This is amazing. God opened up this door for you. And you know what? I saw it from a different perspective. And I ended up going back, letting him know. I preached. I was probably scared to death before I did it, you know, preaching to all my peers. But it was very empowering. Uh, it, it was a confidence builder in a lot of ways. So you, you help each other with those differences. So then we are at marriage myth number Oh yes, so we're on five. You can file four. through. I'm sorry, we're like uh, slide eleven. Did you did you do this one? Uh, yes, I did. Well, you're on number four. Okay, successful couples don't disagree. <laughs> successful couples don't disagree. Oftentimes, what sharpens us is in our um, conversations, our opposing, our opposing thoughts. Um, successful couples, and of course, successful is a definition that probably is up to each one of you what that means to you, being a successful couple. But truly, I think, um, successful couples meaning that we are working towards the same goal, we are, we are unified, um, we are achieving the things in life that we had hoped as a couple. Some of those things can, can make us, you know, creates that definition of success. Um, we would tep all of us know that it is normal life to disagree. Because we disagree, does not mean that the sky is falling and that life's coming to an end and that, you know, the marriage is going to be over. Uh, we learned this really early in our marriage. I came from a family, and a lot of times how we communicate in marriage has a lot to do with the life we came from before marriage. And some of us are... Um, have been married for quite a while. We're still waiting for that to wear off a little bit, but it stays with us. It's woven into the fabric of who we are as people, and it becomes either the thing that we have to um, alter, or it becomes the very thing that we have to learn how to expand and open up. So I remember one of our first disagreements. We, we didn't really disagree a lot when we were dating, but um, when we, he convinced me to marry him and then uh, told me we were going we to move to this uh, place in upstate New York. And I, my home was in Michigan, so we got married and a church had invited us to come on staff in upstate New York. And there I was, you know, all alone, didn't have any family, didn't have any friends, didn't have a car. And he had the job, and he was meeting all the people, and he's the introvert, leans more to the introversion, and I lean more to extroversion, so I'm alone in a little apartment. He told me I had to call him when I took a walk, you know, and call him when I came back. Call, I couldn't go to the pool because all the guys that worked at Kodak all night long hung out at the pool during the day, so I wasn't allowed to go. So I felt very limited and locked in. You do that to a person for a certain amount of time, you can expect a little explosion, you know, at the slightest little disagreement. And we had a, a, a very wonderful, um, we always have had this great relationship, but there came this moment of this, you know, 
not a major deal, but man, I was on the edge. And um, in the midst of this disagreement, I was just, I was just saying, it's not this, it's not that, you're not, you're not meeting this expectation, you're not meeting that expectation, and I was on a roll, and he was like, oh my, I still remember, I could see him sitting on the couch that I hated, that he had bought without asking me, and because it was for $50, and he, you know why he bought, it was black and white, and at the time, black and white was not a thing, he bought it because it was seven feet long, and he could lay down in it from head to toe. That's why it, he reasoned that that would be a good first couch for our apartment. So he's sitting on the couch that I detested. And he's like, we're going to get a divorce. We're going to get a divorce. And I was like, are you kidding? This is just warming up. Because now I have a place I can. Because I came from a family where there weren't a lot of secrets was the good thing. The bad thing was everything was exposed. Um, my father um, agreed that what you started in front of the kids, you completed in front of the kids. And he had no problem letting us know how he felt. My mom would just shut down. She would just totally shut down. And so I remember moments where he was verbally like going at it and he could just express himself verbally and she would go into complete silence and just stand like stiff as a board. I had an older brother and a younger brother. I'm the only daughter in the middle. And it wasn't called little princess time. It was called survival. Because my home was like, you know, machoville. I mean, the men ruled. And so I had to learn how to let my voice be heard. I had to learn. And I remember so many times when I would watch my parents get in a disagreement. And it never got physical, but it got heated verbally, and I remember thinking, I will never be quiet. I will never, like, let him just roll me down with, with his words, and so my husband, on the other hand, came from a home. Parents never disagreed in front of the kids. Tough combination. Parents never disagreed in front of the kids. He remembers his dad one time taking a chair and firmly putting it on the ground and saying, Beverly, to his mom. And you put those two backgrounds together in one little apartment under one little roof, and you've, you've, got, you've got disagreement. So I like um, what one person I've heard say, one guy, he said, you know, she taught me how to fight, but I taught her how to fight fair. And so there are times where we, we are going to disagree. We are going to have opposing opinions um, on things. And we still need to make sure, though, that we are um, able to speak with respect and that we value one another's opinion and that we're listening to each other and that we have... We are intentional in our listening skills and in our verbal skills. Our, our disagreements are not for one to rule while we just shut the other one down. It's a time where we are able to put our different opinions on the table and work through them. I tend to really agree with my dad after being a mom of four um, young adults. 
the picture, the family picture you saw, I, I realized my son had his arm around Kristen. So the two on the side, you know, Rick and Kara, are our only married um, couple in our family. The other three are single. We're praying for in-laws on the, the, among those three. Um, but I agreed with, with what my dad said because um, what you start in front of your children, if you're going to, and we're all normal. We have disagreements. Our, we, we have disagreements with our dearest friends. Um, when we start something like that, disagreements in front of our kids, it is healthy for us to complete it. It's healthy for us to let them know it's okay. Mom and dad don't always, aren't going to start seeing and, and agreeing with everything. We're not going to always be on the same page, but our goal is to get on the same page and to let them know that it's okay and mom and dad still love each other. By the time my parents were done with an argument, we were like, go to your room. You know, go get a room. <laughs> um, they, my dad made sure that there was no question in our minds that everything was okay between he and my mom. So I always appreciated that. Marriage myth number five, if I pick the right person, we will always be in love. If I pick the right person, we will always be in love. I believe there are so many things in life that have more to do with our choice of attitude than it does sometimes with us um, fretting over, am I making the right decision? You know, is it door number one, door number two, or door number three? Um, God, did I hear you right? Did, did I make a mistake and now you're upset with me and now you've changed your mind, God? How does this whole thing work when it's a really bad day? That sort of can be where our mindset goes. On the side of that myth, I want you to write the letter Y and put a circle around it. Just the letter Y and put a circle around it. I call this my Y factor. And this relates to a couple of the myths that, that have even already been discussed. And this was a moment for me. Um, I uh, often had a tendency um, towards depression growing up and into my adult life. I, um, it, I remember the very first season of depression I went through. I was 15. And it was one of those things that just followed me throughout my life. Spent many days during college um, in my room with the lights turned off, playing sad music, crying in the corner, writing poetry, you know. I don't know exactly what, what all that does for us, but I, I make, created a habit as I look back. I saw how I created a habit of endeavoring to comfort myself with my sadness. I don't know what makes us think that's going to work, but oftentimes when we wake up in the morning, if we lean in that type of direction, we will wake up in the morning and we will feel this cloud of sadness come over us and we have no idea where it came from. Nothing really changed much from the night before when we went to bed. Um, kids are still there. We still have to go through our, our daily routines. Um, things are okay in relationship and marriage, but we feel overwhelmingly the, this overwhelming sadness and we don't know where it's coming from. If you look at that letter Y, and at that point where the V sort of meets, 
when we look at that, you could circle that, right where the, the V starts. That's the beginning of that feeling. That's the beginning, oftentimes, of, of your day. And we have all of a sudden this choice. It came to me one morning when I immediately felt the sadness and I thought, oh, shoot, this is going to be forget this day. This is just going to, you can chuck it off the calendar because this day is going to be nothing but um, darkness, feeling overwhelmed, feeling, um, you know, like I'm in a cloud. It's just going to be a day that I'm not going to be able to get anything done. I'm not going to get anything accomplished. I just feel so sad. And immediately I heard this voice, and I know it was the voice of God, and he said, but you can choose not to be sad. And I was like, where'd that come from? I knew that wasn't me. <laughs> I can choose not to be sad? And then I heard again, you can choose not to be sad. I was a mom of four. And I had never realized before that I could ch make a choice that would determine my emotional state for that day. I never knew that. And I thought, how can I choose not to be sad? And immediately I saw this road, like a Y. And to the and if you're looking at the Y, the road to the left, that's the that's the road that you take when you choose sadness. You choose to go with it. You're going to move with that emotion. And for some reason, we think that wrapping ourselves with that sadness is like wrapping ourselves with the comforter off of our bed. And we just stay in our pajamas all day and we go under the covers and we're going to like just tell everybody, leave us alone. I'm having a bad day. And we move into that sadness as though it's going to make us feel better. And we get to the end of the day. Nothing's gotten accomplished. Um, for me, the house was a disaster. Um, I didn't. I still had dishes in the sink. There was still laundry to be done. The kids were all over the place. They knew that mom wasn't really with them that day. And at the end of the day, I felt miserable. And I didn't like myself. I'd, I hadn't accomplished nothing. Versus, all of a sudden, I saw that if I took the other road and I chose not to be sad, and I chose to do something with that day that would accomplish something, and I chose not to wrap myself and comfort myself in that sadness, but do simple things like get up and get dressed, go for a walk, complete whatever task I needed to complete that day, and move through my day that before I knew it, within an hour or two, it was lifting. It was starting to leave me. It was, it was like a whole different mindset. And at the end of the day, I actually could like who I was. The why factor. And I believe it is the same, you take the same approach when it comes to marriage, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to whether or not we will always be in love. We can learn if it's not, if we're not, feeling that, we can learn to make a choice to be loving. We might not be over, we might not be um, overflowing with this emotion of love, but we can still choose to do loving acts. We can still choose to approach our spouse in a loving way. So we want to make sure that we 
are engaging and not necessarily comforting the negative, but we're making a choice to move to the positive. The, what is the goal of marriage? The goal of marriage, and I believe the whole point of why God has brought a man and a woman together is for oneness. Oneness. I'll never forget the day that I was uh, in that apartment by myself. And I was sitting at the table and I was feeling pretty sad. And I remember thinking, wow, Lord, I thought that this thing called marriage was going to be like that, you know, those fairy tales that I watched all my life. You know, I thought it was going to be like Cinderella and that prince, you know, Snow White and, and um, not the seven dwarfs, but the prince, <laughs> um, that there was going to be this knight in shining armor that was going to come galloping into my life on that white stallion and he was going to choose me among all the women and pick me up and take me on the back and we were going to go off to, you know, Neverland and love with one another. And I realized that there came a moment where, you know, that shiny mask of armor you know you pick it up as a wife and you look inside and you realize that the person inside is just a man and you're just a woman and you're like two broken people really coming together endeavoring to find this joy and this happiness in marriage to find this oneness and it was such a desire of my own heart to be able to feel this oneness with my husband. And I realized in that moment that I had this thing called expectations. And I was wanting to be able to see a man come into my life that was going to be strong in all the areas that, that I was weak. And that I could lean on him for everything. And little did I know until I said all the I do's, that oneness calls for a lot of work and effort on both parts. But the beauty of oneness, we go back and look at that myth that talked about differences. differences. Let me see where it is. Am I missing it? Differences will just push you apart. Um, number three, differences will just push you apart. The beauty of oneness is recognizing that our differences are there to make us one. That when I bring in what I have, what God has placed within me, the abilities, the, the joy, the skills, the talents, what I love about life and the things that, that I'm, that I'm uh, able to accomplish in life. And I bring that into a marriage with all the skills and the character that my husband has and that he brings into life. That one of us by ourselves can't get the job done. We really can't get the budget done very well and be successful. 
praying just by ourselves doesn't really make us a very successful couple. Um, one being joyful and the other, um, you know, just kind of groveling through the day and sadness doesn't make a successful couple in front of our kids. But as we look at what Jesus said when he prayed, even over his disciples, when he was talking to the Father and he said, I pray that they be one as you and I are one. That as we come together with our differences, that the differences are not enemies. And that's sometimes how we look at our differences, that they are enemies. But that our differences make us this one beautiful unit. And that our differences are what complete the picture of beauty and oneness in marriage. So the, uh, the argument that Pam talked about that we had, you know, early in our marriage. And, you know, she was rolling with it. I'm like, boy, this young lady can really argue. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, that my parents didn't argue like this. So later I told her, I said, I believe what I began to realize is that in the ocean of emotion, you have deep sea diving gear. And I have a snorkel. <laughs> and as we would argue, you would like, oh, look at the colors down here. Let's just go deeper. And I'm thinking, I'm drowning. I'm drowning. <laughs> you know? So there was, there was that difference. And it had a major uh, significance in how we argued, uh, how we would deal with the difference or with the challenge. So when it comes to the stresses in your marriage, uh, let me ask you, you know, and don't raise your hand. You don't have to fill out a paper on it. But what amount of stress do you have currently in your marriage? You know, and then you ask yourself, well, where does the stress come from? What is it that affects it? One of the things that we believe is when your expectations are here, and your reality is here, what you have in the middle is stress. When your expectations are here and your reality is here, what you have in the middle is stress. The only way to reduce the stress is either to change your reality or to lower your expectations. And usually life is a little bit of both. You know, it's a little bit of both. Adjusting your expectations, changing your reality in the ways that you're able to uh, is one of the ways that we really believe helps to minimize stress. Uh, so what we need in the final analysis is not a new spouse or it's not a new house, but what we need is this beautiful word, understanding. We need understanding. Part of it would be to say not only what is the issue we're going through, but for you as a spouse to be able to say and for me to say, how does Pam tend to look at that issue? I know how I see it, but how does she tend to see it? What does it look like to her? Uh, and, you know, as you've, you've heard before, that we seek in that beautiful prayer not to be understood, but to understand. And marriage is a, a process of that. So uh, several years ago in our marriage, we began to notice this principle. We've written a book on it called The Will of a Man and the Way of a Woman. Uh, we began to notice that in our marriage, that my will was a big part of the marriage. But that Pam cared a lot about the way that things were done. You know, I remember when I 
I needed to confront my teenage son. And I said, you know what? When Robbie gets home, I'm having a talk with that boy. I'm having a talk with him the minute he gets home. And Pamela would say, but, but honey, honey, what are you going to say? <laughs> I don't care. I'm just going to talk. And how are you going to say it? I don't care. I'm just going to set him straight because he needs to be set straight. She said, but sweetheart, it's all about what you say, how you say it, when you say it, where you say it. And I'm thinking it just needs to be set. Um, he just needs to be confronted. That's the issue. So we not only noticed it there, but in other areas, this dynamic of the will of a man and the way of a woman. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. A way. And we began to think more about this, and it showed up in other areas in our lives. Um, one, beautifully, biblically, after we had begun to use this phrase, the will of a man, the way of a woman, uh, we noticed it with each other. One day when I was reading the stories of Joseph and Mary, I'm reading about the moment when the angel appears to Mary. And the angel says, Mary, you're going to bear the Christ child. And Mary's a young girl. And how does she respond? How could this be? I'm only a what? A virgin. I don't have the experience to have a baby. Now, put that in marriage. What if a husband said, sweetheart, I'm going to buy a new truck. And she says, honey, how are we going to do that? Don't worry about it. Just trust me. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll get a good payment plan or whatever. We'll figure it out. And uh, just, just be quiet and trust me. Well, that's not what the angel did. The angel Gabriel said, oh, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you so that the one born of you is truly born of God. So the angel beautifully described the way that this would happen. Patiently, beautifully, not just be quiet, listen to me, I'm the angel, you know, you're the, the servant. No, the angel described it. And you know what Mary said? Be it unto me, as you have said, I am the servant of the Lord. You see, God knows how to talk to a woman because he understands the way of a woman. All Mary needed was patient description of how it would happen. And she was in. She was all in. Now, with Joseph, it was a different story. God had to put the man to sleep. Sort of had, sort of had to knock him out, you know. And then it's amazing because the words that Gabriel used, he used about a third as many words as he used with, with uh, Mary. And do you know what the angel said, what Gabriel said to uh, Joseph? Mary will have a son. You will name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. The will of a man. It was like, it was like a, a marine sergeant. <laughs> you know, here's how it's going down. Mary will have a son. You will name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. There's something about the will of a man and the way of a woman. And when we began to see this, it so affected how we understood each other. Uh, and the adjustment of expectation and the dynamic of reality at work. So this beautiful thing, the mystery, I would not propose to tell you that I know how to describe the way of a woman. But, you know, there is a scripture that says, the, the, uh, the proverb that says there are three ways that are excellent, four that are beyond understanding. The way of a ship on the sea, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, and the way of a man with a maiden. 
that they're beyond description. So there's something about, something powerful about the, the way of a woman. So we are going to look at what the way of a woman looks like when it is at its best. And this, of course, is one of those um, lists of things that you're going to see yourself in, you're going to see your spouse in, and areas that, you know, are just checkpoints for us. And though this is uh, the list that we work with, we could add probably a lot more to it. So the way of a woman, when, it, when we are at it our best, we are insightful, we are supportive, we are encouraging, we are helpful, we are gracious, we are motivating, positive, challenging, we're stretching, we're committed to a man. When we are at our best, and there are some of you that could say, yeah, and there's qualities in my wife that you don't even have on that list, so I encourage you to let her know today. And there are qualities on that list that we as ladies could sharpen up in. And I want to just encourage you with this, being a mom of four. If there are things on that list, you might say, wow, there's a lot more on that list that I don't have than I do have. But the beauty of God is that he's created our life in seasons, just like he's created our world. Florida doesn't have as many obvious seasons. <laughs> but I remember when somebody said to me, coming from New England, of course, we had these, you know, very obvious seasons, and they said, when you've lived here long enough, you'll start to see the season, and I thought this year, like, I can actually tell when it's spring in Florida. I'm beginning to, I must have been here long enough now, 11 years, um, but that is very much like life and marriage. It has, and there's a beauty in the seasons. There are things that you have in your heart as women that you wish so much you could enjoy in your marriage right now. Or maybe you wish you could enjoy in your own individual life. And I just want to encourage you and let you know that it's coming. It's coming. Just because you don't see it right now in this season doesn't mean that you're in a hopeless state. Doesn't mean that all is lost. But it's coming. And God has planned for you different uh, moments and experiences um, skills and, and uh, um, accomplishments that are deep within you that you have not even begun to see yet. But in particular seasons of your life, and as your children get into different seasons of their life, as your husband walks in different seasons of his life, God is going to all of a sudden begin to expose more that is within you. There are moments you might say, there's got to be more to life than this. There is. Be patient. Stay committed. And begin to look at this list and begin to say, how much of this can I begin to embrace now? What are the areas that I need to sharpen? Because the way of a woman is absolutely beautiful. I want to encourage you and remind you that in Genesis 2, when God created man, he was incomplete. Everything God had said was good. 
but it was still incomplete. And once again, he had to put the man to sleep to get something accomplished. <laughs> and out of man, he created woman. And he created woman because there was a need. And he created her to complete the picture. We have been created to oftentimes meet the needs in the world that we're in. It might be the needs of your children. It might be the needs you see in your husband. It's the need in your home, the need in your community. You are created to meet a need. It's like in us. It's part of the fabric that he's woven when he created us. And we are sometimes at our best when we are meeting the needs. Don't let the needs wear you out. Make your choices wisely. But God has created you to meet the needs. Let one of our kids fall down on the gravel and get up and say, Daddy! And we are like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with the world? They're supposed to say mommy, and it's in the, even in their pain, we're like, oh, isn't this beautiful? They need me, you know? And when our husbands come to us and they're like, oh my gosh, I've had a terrible day and you're the only one I can talk to, it's like, ah, you know? Sorry you're in pain, but boy, that makes me feel good. We are created to meet those needs. So continue to, to sharpen and, sh and allow God to shape you in those ways. One of, the, uh, one of the other that Pamela alluded to a moment ago is that because the way of a woman can be so strong that women, generally speaking, struggle with their expectations. Uh, Pamela tells me that uh, whenever she has a conversation with someone, that often, right after the conversation, when she leaves, she's still having the conversation with them in her mind. And she's saying, I should have said this, or I could have said that, or whatever. And she said, do you guys do that? I said, not usually. Not usually. And, uh, you know, there's some, some dynamic differences. Well, there's something about not only the way of a woman, but also the will of a man. The will of a man and the way of a woman at their best are one thing, at their worst are another. You know, unfortunately, the will of a man at his worst can be harmful, you know, abusive. Uh, you know, we've met with students and with counselees that have dealt with spiritual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. Some of you in this room, you might have experienced it in your life, even the way you were raised, uh, and the hurt of that, the hurt of those words, uh, the will of a man not being used in a way to honor, but being used in a way to dishonor. So the, the will of a man at his best is focusing, purposeful, uh, Christ-like, protective, committed, faithful, grounded, dependable, and an anchor in a home, uh, something of strength within the home that becomes a value to the children. And you don't have to be the, the loudest person or the most talkative one in the family for your children to feel the strength of your impact. One person put it this way. Uh, actually, Dr. James Dobson, he said the best thing that a father could do for his children is to love their mother. 
The best thing a father could do for his children is to love their mother. There's something secure about that. In a couple of minutes, when we take a break, we're going to come back and take just a little while to talk about probably the most helpful parenting insight that we've ever learned, uh, something that has really helped us in a major way with our children. But the will of a man becomes an influence in the life of the home. Um, but because the will of a man can be so strong, men, whereas women will struggle with their expectations, men, we tend to struggle with our egos, with our egos. You know, and one person put it this way. What is the ego? It is edging God out. It is edging God out of our lives. It's putting ourselves at the center of life uh, instead of one another. You know, the, uh, the differences between men and women, the will and the way we even see it in our children as they're growing up. Uh, remember when, when Kara, who served here with you guys, with her husband Rick, when she was a little girl, when she was about four years old, blonde hair, blue eyes, driving in the car with her one day, she's sitting next to me, and she had been very quiet on the whole drive, which if you know Kara, that was unusual for Kara. She was very quiet. And I'm, it hit me. I thought, I wonder what that little four-year-old mind is thinking. And so I say, hey, Kara. And she goes, huh? I said, what are you thinking about right now? No joke. I kid you not. What are you thinking about right now? She turned to me. She said, I'm thinking that you're handsome. I thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was the last thing in the world I ever The cutest thing in the world, the last thing I expected to hear. I think I almost drove the car off the road. I was so surprised by it. <laughs> But, you know, later that day I told Pamela, we laughed about it, thought it was so cute. So over the years, I would every now and then say, hey, Kara, what are you thinking right now? That my dad's handsome, you know. And, and when she went to college and we were using instant messaging, I'd say, how you doing? How's school going? All this. And at the end, what are you thinking about right now? That my dad's handsome, you know. So, uh, you know, when you need the ego boost, <laughs> right? And so a few years later, Robbie was about four or five years old, our son. And we're driving in the car one day, and Robbie's sitting next to me, and he's being quiet, which was more usual for Rob. He's sort of looking out the window. And the time with Kara came to my memory, and I thought, I wonder what Robbie's thinking about right now. And even more so, I wonder what he's going to say if I ask him that question. And I was really hoping he wasn't going to say, I'm thinking you're handsome. But I had to ask. So I was driving. I said, hey, Rob. And he goes, huh? I said, what are you thinking about right now? He said, nothing. <laughs> and I said, Rob. I said, I know you're thinking about something like football or Batman or video game or whatever. I said, what are you thinking about? And he had like a scowl. He turned. He said, nothing. Like, leave me alone, you know. And. I told my wife, it hit me in that moment that men have a mental gear that women don't have called neutral. Neutral. And, uh, and you see even those little dynamic differences, you know, in our children when they're, when they're young. Well, there's something about the will of a man and the way of a woman, but we want to describe a little bit for you what we mean by this. Uh, the principle of the will of a man and the way of a woman is about an inner motivation that exists at the core of our souls. And it basically says this, that while the will of a man compels him to act on the strengths he feels he can offer his wife, the way of a woman compels her to act out of the understanding 
she feels she can offer her husband, drawing them both into a relational oneness. So this principle between men and women is so important. Men love to display their strength. And by that, I don't just mean physical strength. I mean their abilities. Men love to be affirmed. To a man, affirmation is love. Uh, I remember the first time I built some shelves when we got married for my for my album collection. And I built them out of plywood, you know, and I built them. And Pamela said, can I see them? You got to say, no, 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 no. Got to get them stained, all this. And then I said, all right, you want to come look at my bookshelves? And she came and she's like, wow, those are some nice bookshelves. And I'm thinking, well, really? You like them? Tell me more, you know. <laughs> And uh, so to me, those affirmations, you know, that's, that's like love. I mean, it's, it's huge. Women so value the insight being valued that they have to bring into the relationship. Do you know that one of the foremost teachers on family life, Dr. Gary Smalley, he once in a session we're in, he said, I believe that God has put within women an understanding for how the marriage is supposed to work in a way that men don't see. And, you know, when you look at the curse upon men and women in the book of Genesis, the Bible said that the the man would work by the sweat of his brow. And it says that the woman, your desire will be toward your husband. So it's almost like where the man's trying to prove himself in his work. The wife, even though she may work outside the home, she has such a desire for the marriage to be all that it's supposed to be. So there's a gift that we have in one another. When you live life as a teeming couple, you're not just as smart about marriage as you are. You're as smart about marriage as you and your wife and everyone you read and learn from because you choose to work not solo but to work as a team. So where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, We desire the will of God, don't you? How many of you desire the will of God for your life? Just put your hand up. You want the will of God. You know, we talk to students all the time that are focused on the will of God. How do I find it? You know, what am I supposed to do vocationally? Who am I supposed to marry? You know, the girls want to find will. The guys want to find grace. You know, the the whole deal. So how do we find that? But you know what? As you look at Scripture, the Scripture reveals much more about the ways of God than the will of God. Think of the verse. Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your what? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he will make your path straight. If you walk in his ways, he will make sure you're walking in his will. The tough thing in this whole deal is not the will of God. God will direct us. He's the guide. He's the shepherd. The challenging thing is learning how to walk in the ways of God. And the way of God in marriage involves loving one another, serving one another, preferring one another and building a relationship because you know what the more i can fill my life my wife's life with blessing encouragement honor and joy the more it reflects back on me the more i receive it works the same way in marriage give and it will be given to you now we all we all know there's seasons in marriage some that are difficult we're going through challenges I remember when I had lost my voice uh, all those years ago, and we were at a conference getting ready to go to a banquet, 
and I knew I was going to be in a loud room at a banquet sitting around a table with different leaders, and I knew they wouldn't be able to hear me over the roar of that room. And something in me was dying, having to go out to do that. And we're in our hotel room, and Pamela knows it. She knew I didn't know how to deal with this thing. I was, it was still so new. I didn't know what I was going through. And in the middle of that moment, she says, sweetheart, she said, could I say something to you? I said, what is it? She said, I just feel like God's put a word on my heart for you. I said, go for it. She said, I feel like God wants you to know that long before you're a husband, a father, a leader, a pastor, you're his son. And he loves you. And he, he cares about you. And you know what? Something happened I did not want to have happen. Some tears started coming out of my eyes. And she tapped something inside of me that was key and allowed the word God put in her heart to bless something in me. There have been times we've walked through in our marriage where, you know, sending a text to each other, praying for one another has been such a big help in our marriage. And I will tell you, one of the more recent lessons that God has taught me and been teaching me is the power of praying together as a couple. And, you know, when you hear that, I remember over the years I've heard it as a man. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I mean, I'm just trying to have my own devotions, much less trying to have devotions with my wife and get that right. I don't even have my personal devotions where I want them to be yet. But then I underestimated something, the power of unity in prayer. And then I began to realize that, you know what, what God's not saying is you have to pray for hours together every day as a couple. Even a few moments together can be so powerful in your marriage. It's like you step back into the Garden of Eden for a moment, and you become one in spirit. And then you begin to see God do beautiful things in your lives. Now, in a moment, we, we just want to pray for you, pray for your marriage. Uh, we're going to take just a few minute break, then we're going to come together and just do about 30 minutes or so on family when it comes to parenting and an insight that has really helped us out of Proverbs related to that. But just before we pray, are there any questions about what we've discussed, uh, the will of a man, the way of a woman, anything you just would, would like to ask uh, of either one of us? I want to give you that opportunity if there is. Well, good. We answered every question you could ever have in your life, which is so good. Let me let me pray for us. Take the hand of your spouse. They're here with you today. And Lord, we just praise you. We praise you for the glory of God that is upon the lives that are here today, the blessing of God. Uh, we thank you for Pastor Tim and Trey and their family and your love for them and how you have wrapped your grace around their lives. And, Lord, the influence that you are giving them to have in the lives of these. So we pray for every couple. We pray over every home that is represented here. Lord, we pray over the will of a man and the way of a woman at every table, that you reveal something of who you are through that, that you're the God who has a will for us, but you also have ways that you want us to walk in. So, Lord, would you release the blessing of your spirit upon every one of these homes, we look at Abraham and how you said to him, you will be a blessing to the families of the nations of the earth. And Lord, we pray that the blessing of God will pour over each of these families. Lord, as we look at our roles, that we won't just look at what our spouse can do for us, but what we can do for them to serve them and to bless them. 
we specifically pray over areas of difficulty, God, in marriages, uh, division, separation, frustration, uh, issues that have been very hard to overcome, that you, God, would bring a fresh word and a fresh blessing upon these marriages so that they realize that not only are they together working at their marriage, but you're there shepherding over them, growing them, and blessing them. And we believe you for it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.